0: Welcome to the podcast of the Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jim Cole, and I'm proud to be the 96th president of Las Vegas Rotary. Las Vegas Rotary's main focus is on youth, specifically youth literacy and life skill development. If you're in town, we invite you to join us at the Lowry's Prime Rib at noon on Thursdays. You can also find more information about our meetings on lasvegasrotary.com. If you're unable to join us, we live stream our meetings on Facebook at noon Pacific time Thursdays. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: Yeah, it is. Okay, I'll do this quickly so that uh, we can get right into the speaker. Uh, I want to introduce Dr. Ron Jardima to you. He is Associate Dean Environmental Sciences at UC Davis in California. Um, He lives in Napa Valley with my sister. They're married. (laughs) My sister, Cindy. Um, They have three boys, uh, wonderful, my only nephews, so I appreciate that. I want to say that I have known Ron for not quite, but almost um, 47 years, something in that neighborhood, when Cindy invited him to the Sadie Hawkins dance in high school, and uh, they pretty much have been together since. Um, He told me at dinner last night he has never been to Las Vegas. This is his first time. <clears throat> He's, he drove by, and I think we calculated that at 45, 40 years ago, something like that. He drove by. I was living in Colorado at the time, and he came to pick up my sister to make her his bride. So um, he is uh, an expert in um, environmental toxicology and was involved in the deep water Horizon, Oil Spill, and the Aftermath, which he's going to talk to us about today. So, Ron, turn this over to you. Oh, excuse me, Dr. Ron got a little familiar there.
2: Thank you, Tina. Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for inviting me here today, and uh, thank Tina for inviting me as well. Uh, Closer? Okay. Um, I'm not used to using a microphone. Usually when I teach a class, I have a booming voice, and I I don't use it, but I will use it today. Um, so uh, what I'd like to do is give you a little synopsis of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. It's one of the areas that I work in. I, always, I also work in uh, the area of pesticide fate and effects in the environment, but that's for another day. Um, how many of you remember the Deepwater Horizon oil spill? Perfect, right, yeah. You know, when I, when I teach a freshman class, um, and they're looking younger every year, <laughs> Um, they don 't always know uh because you know we 're looking at them being maybe eight or ten years old. Is there a clicker here or do I use the <clears throat> i i can I can just hit the button um and so uh oh, that actually moved <laughs> Let me go back <clears throat> so um so it 's interesting in that. Um, often when I try to talk to freshmen about this, I have to really go back to the beginning and tell them what's going on. The neat thing about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, even though it was an environmental disaster, is it was on TV. How many of you saw the wellhead gushing oil every day on CNN? Thank you. Um, and, uh, and, that, and that probably was the first time we had um, an, an environmental disaster unfolding in front of you minute by minute. Okay, and uh, and so let me let me go back and kind of give you a summary of what happened, a little bit of behind the scenes information, probably a few things you didn't know about, and kind of where things are at today. Um, okay, so the well blew out <coughs> on April twentieth, twenty ten. Don't you know the one time I need my uh, there it goes twenty ten? Oh, this is just like a lecture. Yeah, <laughs> you know the the clicker uh, the the. Uh, Works and then it doesn't work. Um, and the re okay, let me back up. Deepwater Horizon was a um, drilling well, it was not a production well. And when they were drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, they hit a fairly large pocket of methane. And the methane rushed through the pipe a mile below the surface of, of the ocean um, and hit the wellhead and ignited and blew up. <clears throat> and when it did, one of the things that, that was sort of lost in the shuffle with the disaster occurring for months on end is that 11 people died. Uh, that was one of the big tragedies early on. How many of you saw the movie? Okay, a few of you. All right, um, The Deepwater Horizon movie that was out about two years ago. I was in Florida with, uh, visiting my son-in-law at the time and the two of us went on a Friday afternoon. I guess the movie had been out a while. Um, he and I went to the movie theater, and got in <coughs> and sat down in the middle, up at the top. Only two people in the theater, <laughs> the entire movie. <laughs> so I think it it was uh, on its way out the point. Anyway, the movie focused on the disaster. Okay, it didn't focus on the, uh, I should say, the explosion, not the later disaster environmentally. So when it blew out, <coughs> it took several days, but ultimately, here we go again. Ultimately, the platform capsized. And that was the real sort of environmental problem, is that when the platform capsized, it dropped into a mile down into the ocean. It broke the riser pipe that went from the bottom of the ocean to the platform. And when that ruptured, that's when the oil started spewing out uncontrollably at the rate of about 2 million gallons a day. And that was the problem, is that you saw on CNN that very gush of oil coming out. Now I should mention one of the things that that um, nobody was aware of at the time the wellhead had a well cap on it. That's Oh there we go. The wellhead had a well cap on it that had three fail-safe shutoffs. All three failed. <coughs> OK, one of the keys there, and, and, and this was a problem at the time, um, is that they installed it knowing none of those fail-safes worked. The trouble is, is that there's 3,000 wells in the Gulf of Mexico today, and we don't know how many of them now have well heads that also are not capable of working. Uh, many of them were installed defective, and I'll come back to that. Um, and so we had a gush of oil, essentially, that we couldn't control. It came about 45 miles off of the mouth of the Mississippi River. And and important to know is that because of the clockwise circulation of the Gulf of Mexico, the oil, when it reached the surface, started to move north in the clockwise direction following the Gulf. And that was a real big concern. Two reasons. Because when it went to the shorelines, it had an economic impact Because the Gulf of Mexico is a very big shrimping industry down there. They also have a very big oyster industry down there. And and most, if not all of us, have have enjoyed both shrimp and oysters from the Gulf of Mexico. And so with that clockwise move up along the coast, the likelihood was that this oil was literally going to um, turn the beaches into more or less asphalt parking lots. Not only that, you also had a number of, whoops, a number of, Um, uh, wildlife uh, refuges, etc. These were spawning grounds for fish. Uh, They were were mating grounds and so forth for uh, marine mammals, birds, pelicans and so forth. So you had a lot of potential for damage along the Gulf Coast. All right. So, when there's an oil spill, the Coast Guard takes charge. Um, They are the on-scene coordinators. They run the show. It's usually an admiral. Everybody else is under the direction of the Coast Guard. The idea is that the US EPA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration assist the Coast Guard, but ultimately the folks responsible for the spill are the spillers themselves, and in this case BP oil. They're the ones responsible for having all the uh, methods in place, the equipment in place, et cetera, so that they deal with the oil. They pay the cost directly. Anything that we do, um, EPA, Coast Guard, et cetera, is billed back to them. So ultimately, the industry is totally responsible. So when there's a spill, initially you have to make a couple of decisions. You can do nothing. <clears throat> nothing simply means leave it. Um, And sometimes that works. For instance, uh, off the west coast of the US, if there's a major oil spill and it's blowing out further to sea and there are no big resources that it's going to threaten, we'll let it go. Because nature ultimately breaks down an oil spill. Most of that oil will either evaporate, as you know, oil contains gasoline and other very volatile hydrocarbons, broken down by sunlight. The rest of the oil in water, for the most part, is broken down by bacteria in the water. But it takes a bit of time for that to happen. If, on the other hand, oil is moving closer to shore and there are valuable resources that uh, you want to protect, then you want to do something. And the next question is, first off, what are the resources? And I just mentioned a couple along the Gulf Coast. And what are the potential mechanisms or methods that you can use? to deal with that spill, <clears throat> all right? And, and you might remember this from the news at the time. One of the first things they did is they tried burning the oil, right? Oil is, is flammable, at least when it's fresh. Um, the longer it sits, the less flammable it is. They tried burning it. Um, it didn't burn very efficiently, number one. Number two, it takes one problem and turns it into another problem, as you can see by the uh, heavy smoke here right? It goes from being a water issue to being an air issue, uh, air quality issue. And so early on they quite realized that that wasn't going to solve the problem. Now, now let me back up for a second. You're dealing with 2 million gallons of oil coming out a day. The Exxon Valdez spill was something on the order of 10 or 11 million gallons total. <laughs> okay, it was a finite tanker. It only had so much oil in it. This was like sticking a, a um, spigot into the ground. And it was basically unlimited. You could have oil coming out for months, if not years, if you weren't careful. And so it was a bigger problem. <clears throat> All right, the next thing you can do is you can try booming it and skimming it. <clears throat> and and it, in short, what that means is that you put some sort of a, a barrier around the oil. And, and this is kind of a floating plastic barrier. And then you take a ship called a skimmer, or a boat called a skimmer. And and to, long story short, you're literally mowing the lawn, OK? You're keeping the oil in an area, and then you're skimming back and forth. And you're trying to pick the oil up. If you don't have the barrier, oil will continue to spread and expand indefinitely. So it'd be like mowing a lawn that keeps expanding in size. You never finish, right? And the trouble with this is that the oil industry did not have enough skimmers in the Gulf. There were not enough skimmers in the entire world to deal with this amount of oil coming out of the ground, because they never anticipated that there would be a well break. There's 3,000 wells out there. Why didn't they anticipate it? They should have. Finally, the only real resolution was to hit the oil with dispersant. And dispersants are detergents. They're very much like Dawn dishwashing liquid, et cetera. And they very much break the oil up, just like you break grease up when you wash your dishes. Or when you scrub your skin, et cetera, they break up oils. And they work the same way in water. Now, they're not a perfect solution, but they were the only thing that we had in enough supply to deal with the spill. Now, the real solution was to, anybody want to guess what the real solution was? Plug, plug the pipe, cap the well, right? You've got to stop the outflow, <laughs> or it's never going to go away. But in the meantime, because they had to develop a system for actually drilling down and shutting off the pipe, that took time, they decided they, they had to at least try to disperse the oil. And here, for instance, they're dropping dispersion, and the dispersion takes and it breaks the oil into tinier droplets, and it pushes those droplets into the water column. And when that happens, then bacteria are more capable of breaking it down because they're finer and finer particles that they can now chew. Well, this gives you an idea of what happens. You get a midwater cloud that forms, so it's not on the surface anymore. It's about 30 meters down. And the idea there is that you get it off the surface if you're worried about marine mammals and birds, and you move it into the water column where now it's going to impact fish. Now, one of the key things about an environmental situation like this, and one that we had to deal with, is that you can't clean up the oil. It's going to be there for a while. Nature really is the only thing that cleans it up, sunlight and bacteria. The only thing you can really do is move it somewhere. And you have a choice. In this case, you could either let it flow to the surface and let the current take it to the Gulf Coast, and cause all the environmental damage that you're going to have on the Gulf Coast, or you could continue to disperse it with detergent and drop it into the water column and keep it off the beaches. There was no other solution. It was just a matter of where do we put it until it breaks down. That was not an ideal situation, but that was the best we had. Well, that's just me in my my younger days showing uh, Show, showing how dispersion works for, for a news, uh, newscast. Um, okay, So we tried aerial application for a long time, which is typically what you do. It didn't work very well, because by the time the oil comes up from a, from a mile below the surface, it's quite cold. It's already moussey, which means it turns into this thick stuff, kind of like what you drain out of your car, or worse. Uh, and it it doesn't it doesn't disperse anymore. No matter how much detergent on it you get on it, it won't disperse. So quite quickly, really, we realized this wasn't going to work. And so ultimately, the Coast Guard, the on scene coordinator, decided to try something different, and that was to inject the dispersant at the wellhead. So how many of you remember this picture of the wellhead flowing out, and you had an injector right here? and quite literally what they were doing is that they were injecting detergent right where the oil came out of the ground. Now the oil is coming out of the ground at very high speed and turbulence and it's very hot, 100 degrees Celsius, which is about the boiling point of water. And that means that you're going to get much better mixing of the detergent into the oil. Okay, just simple chemistry, the hotter the better it mixes. And so that way A lot, if not most, of this oil never reaches the surface because it mixes and and disperses in the water column, but much more effectively. Never been done before, and it was difficult for us as decision makers. I was part of a 40-scientist panel that had to provide uh, on-the-spot advice to the Coast Guard. Never been done before, so we didn't know the consequences uh, because nobody had done any research on this, surprisingly again. All right. <clears throat> One of the things that we found that happened in this subsurface dispersal is that instead of getting the classical beaches are all oiled and everybody's out there, you know, raking it up and, and throwing uh, adsorbents and straw and everything else on it and try to clean beaches up that are sort of plastered. Instead, what we ended up with was a situation like this. And, and we saw these sorts of news reports coming out of CNN where you'd have a reporter walking on the beach and, and the reporter was having a hard time finding oil. <laughs> and they'd find droplets here or there and, and they were about the size of, you know, smaller than a foot uh, and, and occasionally everywhere. And what we had done as a decision making group by going with the subsea injection was to keep this from happening, to keep the oil from going to the beaches, because that was one possibility, and instead keep it in the water column, and eventually have it drop into the water column. And just occasional oil globs made it to the coastline. So much so that after the spill was um, capped in in late July of 2010, I had an AP reporter who I'd been talking to quite a bit. Call me one day. He was in—he was stuck in traffic in New Orleans, and he calls me one day on his cell phone because he had nothing else to do. And he said, "Is this the disaster that never happened?" And I said, "Well, why is that?" And he said, "Because we expected a a Prince William Sound Exxon Valdez situation with oil all over the beaches." He says, "It's not there." And I said, "Well, you know, I kind of predicted that when it first started. When we first talked, I said." The Gulf of Mexico is a very warm climate. The water's warm, the air's warm, the sunlight's intense. I said, if you disperse the oil early on between sunlight breakdown and bacterial breakdown, you're not going to see much oil. It's going to break down efficiently at the surface, but you will have some plumes in the deep sea area. Again, you move it from one place to the other, you have a choice. The benefit was to keep it off the beach. The cost was we ended up with some of it in the deep sea area. There was no perfect solution here. We only could move it to one place or another. All right. Uh, we have a group at UC Davis that, that focuses in the vet school on, on cleaning up and rehabilitating birds and mammals. And they were down there. And they only actually ended up rehabilitating a couple of hundred birds, pelicans, et cetera, and very few marine mammals again, because we kept it off the coastline. And that's considering that the amount of total oil that came out of the wellhead before it was capped was about 200 million gallons. Prince William Sound, Exxon Valdez, in Alaska the total was 12 million gallons. I said 11 earlier, 12 million gallons. Uh, And they had a much bigger wildlife hit than we did in the Gulf. Well, We are finding plumes, and we still find plumes in the deep sea. Again, it was the trade-off. Keep it off the beach, but now it's going to be in the water column. But one of the things to consider is that the Gulf of Mexico, as an oil-producing area, has a tremendous number of natural oil seeps. So you have 40 million or so gallons of oil naturally going into the Gulf every year because of these seeps. And so the amount of oil that's in the deep sea in part is from what's left over the spill and in part is what's from these oil seeps. Now, it's difficult to define the two because we weren't closely looking at the fingerprint of the two types of oil before the spill. Now we're really looking at it closely, but we don't have a lot of information prior to the spill to compare what we now know. All right. the other thing I should mention is that the The other benefit of, there's actually a benefit of having these oil seeps. The other benefit of having these oil seeps is that they've been around for millions of years. And because of that, um, they've naturally selected for bacteria in the Gulf that are capable of literally digesting oil uh, as an energy source. They can live on oil hydrocarbons by digesting them. Um, And you don't get this everywhere around the world, you get it in areas where you've got natural oil seeps. Santa Barbara Channel, for instance, same thing. And so the bacteria that are in the Gulf are already sort of powered up to live on oil. And so that also, along with sunlight, worked to our advantage. Now one of the interesting things that occurred during the the spill is that we had a situation where most if not all of the government scientists could not talk to the media. Um, Folks at NOAA, folks at EPA, even Coast Guard. They had official spokespersons, but the scientists couldn't talk, the ones that were actually doing most of the research. And at that point in time, I was one of only a half a dozen or so academics that had been working extensively on dispersants and oil spill issues um, at that point for over 20 years. And so my phone was ringing off the hook. And uh, in addition to my advising that you would see the oil disappear from the surface fairly quickly, and degrade fairly rapidly. I said, Have you ever looked up IXToc 1? <clears throat> and early on the AP reporter said, No, what's an IXTAC 1? <laughs> and I said, I said, Well, Google it, right? Nowadays you can get everything online. And I said, Google it, because it was a spill uh, that occurred in 1979 in the Gulf of Campeche down here. It was a well blowout. And I remember when this happened. I was an undergraduate in college, and I remember seeing the news reports every day. Uh, we didn't have the continuous monitoring of the well head back then. Um, but I said, uh, I said, take a look at that, because it was a very similar spill. Because BP oil kept saying, well, this had never happened before, so we weren't prepared for the cleanup. Well, in reality, it had happened before. And Ixtoc one blew out in 1979 and flowed for 10 months, which is quite a bit longer than ultimately our spill lasted. And in doing so, remember the clockwise flow, in doing so that oil went up to the Gulf of Texas as far as almost Houston. Now, two things here. One is that the oil industry was wrong. This had happened before. So they should have been prepared for a spill like this. This was not a new thing. And they weren't. The second is that if you go down and you, and you talk to the ecologists and other scientists that have looked at the aftermath of the Ixtac-1 spill, um, they don't find many signs of it left. It's pretty much recovered along the coast of Mexico. Again, the reason for that is the Gulf of Mexico is a warm climate and it has uh, intense sunlight and oil tends to break down fairly readily in that kind of an environment. And so what we're seeing now today, and it's been eight years, um, the signs of the oil spill and the ramifications in terms of damage along the Gulf Coast are relatively difficult to find. Scientists can still find them, but they really have to look pretty hard. The main area that they look right now is deep sea in terms of these plumes. And that's because we had to make a choice between sort of two bad possibilities, the lesser of the two evils being to keep it below the surface instead of letting it go to the coast. All right, future considerations for new spills, because we've learned a lot. One of the key things we learned, and and, um, wasn't apparent at the time, was that you really need a government agency to regulate the oil industry uh, appropriately so this sort of thing doesn't happen. If it does happen, you've got the resources in place. Now at the time, the Minerals Management Service was regulating the oil industry. But they were too close to the oil industry, and they really weren't regulating them. Um, and so what happened is that when the spill occurred, the resources were not in place, as I mentioned before, to deal with a spill of this magnitude. And so there was this scrambling. I don't know if you remember the top hat idea of trying to put this cover over the, the spill, that didn't work. <coughs> and they really had to wait until they could drill two wells, lateral wells, and actually cement in that original well which occurred in late July. Uh, and so you had oil spewing until then. Uh, the amount of oil that came out from this spill matched that from mixed <clears> one. <throat> one of the things that happened personally for me is that I got phoned by all the lawyers. Uh, I was phoned twice by uh, BP Oil, who really wanted me on their team. I got phoned by Nalco, who makes the dispersant. Uh, I got phoned by the U.S. Department of Justice, who wanted me on their side, and because there was enough blame to go around, the federal government was at fault, the oil industry was at fault, they were both at fault, and because as an academic, had I signed on to either side, I could no longer speak publicly, and part of my goal was to educate the public, I said no, and I probably now don't have a Porsche today because of that, but... Um, but it was the right decision. Um, I just didn't feel like I could defend either side, because they were both at fault, and they both had to go and they had to settle, which they eventually did. They actually settled a couple of years ago. <clears throat> and so, um, as I mentioned, inadequate resources on hand, etc. cetera. And the future response for any new spill needs to be based on both sound science. They need to understand how best to respond and have the resources in place. Now, since the spill, the media has been looking at it quite closely. They've been interviewing a lot of us uh, in the area to find out what are the best ways to deal with spills in the future. What are the impacts going to be? How do we make decisions as to where we uh, allow oil to go and where we try to keep it from going? Because, again, as I mentioned before, you can't clean up oil. You can move it and let nature clean it up, but you can't clean it up yourself very well. Uh, and and we, can help, we can help nature, but we can't do it ourselves. You can't go out with a vacuum cleaner and remove it. These skimmers, when they skim, they pick up 98% water and a little bit of oil. And so they have to go back on shore all the time and, and dump off all that water and oil and go back out. So unless you had, you could have had a thousand skimmers in the Gulf, it wouldn't have helped. <clears throat> The other thing we're doing is we're, we're updating our knowledge base of what's going on. And, and I'm on a National Academy of Sciences panel right now, which actually this week we're just signing off on the chapters. But we've been working for about two years to update what we know about dispersants and how they're used in oil spills. And in that regards, then, we're going to be publishing within the next six months uh, an updated new guidebook that the oil industry, as well as responders, et cetera, can use to get not only an updated idea of the science behind dispersants and their use on spills, uh, but also um, an update on other techniques and methodologies to use on spills, as well as an update on the ramifications, environmental damage, et cetera, that spills cause. Let me just say, in final, that one of the biggest problems with oil spills, and it's actually a good thing and a bad thing. They don't happen very often. right? I remember when I was a kid, tankers were grounding all the time and breaking open. You had oil spills pretty regularly. We don't see tankers or or pipelines break to this magnitude very often anymore. And that's because technology is much better. We're much more on it these days. When they do, they can be catastrophic. Now, developing new skimmers and new dispersants and new technologies, et cetera, requires a market for it. Well, there isn't really a market for it because these spills happen so irregularly that you could produce a million gallons of oil dispersant and you'll end up stockpiling it for 20 years until there's a spill. You can't make money. You're not going to make a profit. So there's no real good market for this type of technology. And again, that's where regulation comes in because as a a side cost of producing oil and producing gas and, and gasoline and so forth, We have to require both federal and state agencies as well as the oil industry to partner together to put these things in place because otherwise, the market won't push them to do it. And uh, with that, I think I'll stop, so. Okay, Okay. I'm told I have time for one question. Yes, you raised your hand first. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> one, question, one questionnaire, but two questions. All right. um, can you give us an idea of the time frame that you said that nature will disperse the oil without the... Um, right. Di- and then Without the, other- the dispersant? Right. Right, okay. And so the different time frames. And then the plumes that are still out there from this, are those affecting the deep water, fish, and, 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 and effects of right. like those out there?
2: Okay, yeah. Uh, short answers on both. If you let it naturally disperse, it probably would have taken months to years. Um, and if you have the plumes deep, deep sea, there are critters and organisms down there as well, uh, certainly affecting them as well. Uh, the economic importance is probably less so, uh, ecologically can be argued, uh, and so it's not a perfect world. And again, when we were trying to decide which way to go, it was the lesser of two evils, but we wished we didn't have to do either. So do I have time for one more?
0: <laughs> uh, I guess there is time for one more. All right, go ahead. So, quickly, being um, the oil and gas exploration and production business, I do have an interest. Hello. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah. Um, the brilliant idea about putting Hello. the dispersant in at
2: the wellhead. At the right, the right. I assume the water down there is quite cold. Exactly, 4 degrees Celsius. So that would cool off the 100 degrees Celsius oil that's coming out of the well. down there. Right. And that's a very good question. And, and the answer to that is that because of the marketplace, not the best dispersion necessarily. Um, the oil industry stockpiles dispersion in Phoenix. Okay, Anybody know why? Do you know why? OK. Not nice and warm so much, but because it's equidistant from the Gulf and the West Coast. And so if planes have to respond, they can go one direction or the other. So it's efficient, right? Yes. Really? Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, see, that's, that's why. Um, the other is that I noticed when they first started treating the oil, they were treating with a product called Corexit 9527, made by Exxon. Exxon's the big producer of these things. Corexit 9527 in 2010 had not been used for 15 years, and they actually had a newer dispersant called Corexit 9500, which was the current one to use. Well, early on, they used up all their 9527 first, which wasn't necessarily designed for this kind of a spill because it had been stockpiled for many years and they wanted to get some value out of it. So they used it up. And then they switched to 9500 and they used that afterwards. Uh, A better dispersant, but again, not necessarily uh, well designed for that type of situation. Temperature, yes, because we treat in the Arctic. But pressure, no. We weren't planning to treat a mile down.
0: Thank you very much. As we do with all of our speakers, I'd like to present you with a Share What You Can award. Uh, and we will uh, donate a meal to a needy veteran in your name. So thank you so much for coming to talk to thank us. It's a really fascinating topic. Thank you. Okay, we're running a little long, so I'm just going to say meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of our latest meeting. If you'd like to know more about our projects or are interested in membership in the club, please visit us at lasvegasrotary.com. Now go forth and be the inspiration.